If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is our number two of the World According to Zig podcast. My name is John Ziegler. I'm your host. This is the program where we talk about the news of the week and the events of my often bizarre life and where we provide you with a two-hour oasis of honesty and rationality in the desert of insanity and deceit, which is the American media, cultural, and political landscape. Obviously, so much to get to uh, in this uh, inaugural week, the beginning of the Donald Trump presidency. And in hour number two of the podcast, generally we've been trying to uh, talk to interesting guests. We've been very lucky so far. We've had some really good guests. Next week, by the way, we're scheduled to be joined by the former director of the CIA, Michael Hayden, which will be very interesting for a number of reasons, including Donald Trump's speech to the CIA yesterday. But today, we're really excited to be joined by one of my best friends, a Democratic congressman who we used to have on regularly on the old radio show. He is John Yarmuth from Louisville, Kentucky, and... Um, Normally, you know, John and I would disagree with about a lot of things, but not so much in the area of Trump, but it's still going to be interesting to discuss a a number of issues with him. Congressman Yarmuth, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. Great to be with you. I don't know if I can compete with Michael Hayden, but I'll give it a shot. (laughs) Well, we haven't had Michael on yet, and you know, mainly because, you know, Michael's a big Pittsburgh Steelers fan, so I figured, you know, the bye week between the the championship game and the Super Bowl would be a good time to schedule him. (laughs) And I wanted to talk to you this week, one, because of the beginning of the Trump presidency, and also because you decided to ditch the inauguration and um, got quite a bit of uh, news coverage for that. Before before we get to that, I I, want to go back, because I know it seems like it was a month ago, but it was only a few days ago when the Obama presidency ended. And I wanted to ask you a couple questions about that first, because I know you were a, a big early supporter of Barack Obama in his uh, 2008 campaign. And obviously, as a Democrat, you've been very supportive of him throughout. The, the one thing that happened at the end of his presidency, which has now been forgotten because of obviously all the inauguration coverage, was this commutation of the sentence against the person now known as Chelsea Manning for having leaked government secrets to WikiLeaks. And, uh, you know, there's two questions here, John. I'm curious. You and I have never talked about this before. I find the whole pardon commutation thing to be really odd, considering what's supposed to be the essence of our government, where it's almost king-like, where at the end of your, your reign... You're allowed to wave a magic wand, and for no apparent reason, you can do whatever you want, and whoever you want to get out of prison or or end their sentence or whatever you want to do, it's all up to you, regardless of whether the president's a Democrat or Republican. Are you are you comfortable with that? Because I just think it's a it's a strange concept. Well, I agree it is strange. Um, You know, I I kind of break them down into two categories, though, because. There's so many people in prison now for drug offenses that there has basically there's basically been a national consensus developed that these the sentencing sentencing guidelines were wrong that these people shouldn't have been in jail that long that doesn't serve any constructive purpose so that category of pardons I think makes a lot of sense because I think he's just the the president is just kind of reflecting a national consensus. 
the Channing Manning, uh, Chelsea Manning thing, the Mark Rich thing, those are pretty bizarre um, because they do seem to be kind of uh, out of context with the rest of our system. So you agree that the Chelsea Manning commutation, in your words, was bizarre, and it was particularly bizarre, John. I'm curious, as a Democrat, how you respond to this. The connection to WikiLeaks, which the president and your whole party has just been spending over a month or more claiming helped give Donald Trump the election, and now you commute the sentence of somebody who leaked government secrets to WikiLeaks? How does that make any sense? Uh, well, it, it certainly seems to be a little bit hypocritical. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I believe, you know, listening to the president rationalize that was, was interesting. And, of course, a lot of those points are, were valid, uh, comparing it to sentences of others like David Petraeus and so forth. But that, that's what the pardoning process is for. And there is a, there is a mechanism within the judicial system to make those arguments. And it seems to me that's what is odd about him doing it. Now, I, I can say as a politician, that's something that nobody who was not a lame duck would ever consider doing. Well, see, that's the part <laughs> of the whole pardon commutation process that I find really strange. By doing it on your last days in office, you're basically admitting you know what, uh, this is a mistake, and uh, you know, I'm going to get killed for this, but who cares? <laughs> right. who, who cares? Because I'm leaving office. I, I mean, it's inherently, as we've already stated, a strange process. But one last question on Manning. I believe, and may, I'm as always curious as to whether you agree or not, I think that if Manning had not undergone a sex change operation in this process, that uh, he or she, I guess now she, does not get a commutation from Barack Obama. Am I right about that? Oh, I think you're totally right. And I think he even actually kind of hinted at that by saying that he's had a very rough time while he was incarcerated, which I assume relates to the before and after. Um, okay, but doesn't that, set, doesn't that set a really bad precedent? <laughs> I mean, if that's... <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, that's what we—that's what we love about you, John. That you're always honest. Uh, we don't always agree, but you're always honest, even when it's uh, about a Democrat. Now, as far as Obama leaving, now you and I have had many, many conversations over the years about Barack Obama, and um, you know, I—I I did a movie when he got elected called Media Malpractice. How Obama got elected, and when he got when he was first. Um, running and was I was convinced early on and I told you that he would win the Democratic nomination. I I was really frightened about an Obama presidency because I didn't know who this guy was. I have to acknowledge and I think you know me well enough to know that I I admit when I'm wrong. uh, Barack Obama was a better person. Not saying he was a better politician or or, a better president necessarily, but a better person than I anticipated. He was not the the insane radical, the, you know, the Bill Ayers buddy, the Jeremiah Wright wannabe, you know, that some of us feared when we didn't know who he was uh, running in 2008. And frankly, I think he handled the whole Trump uh, winning the election thing and the transition about as, as, in about as classy a way as I could ever imagine. I, I know Trump would never have handled it nearly <laughs> as yeah. classily if it was in the re- If Michelle Obama takes over for Trump, we're not going to see the same class, okay, <laughs> right. uh, from, from Donald Trump. But I'm still left with this question. Um, who the heck is Barack Obama? I don't feel like I really still to this day i don't know him who do you think barack obama is you actually know him who is who yeah. who, who was president obama well he was, he's a very very cerebral person who in many respects was ill suited um in a personality way the same way or at the opposite end of the scale for the way donald trump's um unsuited and because he didn't, uh, you know, he was not, he's not a particularly social person. Um, he's very, very good with people. But when I, you know, I was probably around him 40 or 50 times while he was president. And I, I never, and, you know, even playing golf with him, I never thought that I was really getting the full, the real person. Right. And with Michelle, it's totally different. Michelle is 100% out there. When you're with her, you know, you've got, you've got her real personality coming out. And Barack, you always got the sense he's a little guarded. And I think 
probably somebody who comes from a biracial background who's in, in the environment that he's been in. That's not, uh, not hard to understand. Um, but I, I, I agree with you. I think he's still kind of hard to peg. Uh, if you, you know, George Bush was pretty much totally out there. You always right. knew where, where George Bush was. And um, so he's kind of a mystery. But and I think he was even a mystery to a certain extent in terms of his political philosophy. I'm not sure that's as easy to peg you as know, some, some people might have thought. You know, that's an interesting thing that you just said there, because that was going to be my last question on mm-hmm. Obama. Because is it my imagination, um, but it certainly seems as if the Obama at the end was far more politically for lack of a better term, moderate, than certainly the Obama that was perceived back in 2008. I'm wondering, do you agree with that? And was that because he had just been so beaten down by the realities of the presidency and, and having a Republican-led Congress at the end? I think that's part of it. But I think for those of us who are kind of living every day with him on the legislative front, we saw different things that would have we thought we thought made him more moderate than liberal. Uh, the primary example was the Affordable Care Act when he made so many deals to get it done that you know he he made a deal with the, with the uh, insurance companies. He made a deal with the pharmaceutical companies. He eliminated. He he willingly gave up any hope of a public option, uh, and which I thought was a terrible mistake just from a negotiating perspective because and and politically as well because without the public option. The Republicans were able to to characterize what was basically their own plan as being a left wing plan. If we had said, "No, we're going to have a public option; you can buy into Medicare and so forth," you know, that would have set the <laughs> the one goal line a lot lot farther away. And we would have said, "No, that's the real left wing plan. Now let's negotiate from there." Mm-hmm. And so, so we saw this on a on a regular basis uh, when we were still in the majority and could actually direct legislation. Um, so yeah, I think that it's, it's been true basically from the first, first couple of years of his administration. And, and last question then on, on Obama's presidency, John. Uh, obviously, you're a liberal Democrat, uh, the last liberal left in Kentucky. <laughs> yes. uh, and, um, and I know you had very high hopes. Uh, you know, Obama comes in with a massive approval rating. He's got both houses of Congress. How would you grade the eight years from the liberal perspective of what you guys ended up getting done in comparison to what you would have expected eight years ago? Oh, gosh. Probably C+. plus. Interesting. Because we effectively didn't get anything after the, the, first, um, the first two years of his administration. Would you agree that his second term was basically a disaster from the liberal perspective? Oh, well, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Yeah, I'm not sure it was Obama's fault, but... But it, it was certainly a disaster, yes. Both from an electoral standpoint as well as getting anything done. As well as getting anything done. Right. I mean, yeah. uh, it, it, it's almost, you know, you know, granted, we're opening up a can of worms here, but it's almost like your party today would be in better shape if he had somehow lost to Romney. Do, do you agree with that? <laughs> um, I think you could make a good case that that would be true. Of course, in 2020, we might, in 2020, we might be talking about a completely different set of uh, circumstances. Now, so, yeah. so, so that translates, and we may get into that, uh, but let's, let's transfer uh, the conversation to, to the next step. Obviously, we're now entering the, the Trump presidency, and you were one of the many Democrats in Congress who chose to not attend the inauguration. And I, I was a little surprised by this. I have to say, Based upon Google alerts, you probably got more news coverage of this decision than almost anything else you've done in Congress, at least that I can tell. And um, I'm I'm, wonder, I'm wondering, since this is something that I, based upon what I currently know, I disagree with the decision. I'm curious how you how you justify your decision to not attend Trump's inauguration. Well, well, first of all, I was trying to decide whether to go before or not before the um, John Lewis the John Lewis situation and. It wasn't so much uh, my contempt for Trump or objection to his policies, whatever in the world those are. Uh, I couldn't object to them because there aren't any, as far as I can tell. Uh, but um, then when, you know, and I'd even talked to, I talked to um, Nancy Pelosi, I talked to Jim Clyburn, you know, to see what they thought about 
attending or not attending because I really wasn't all that excited about it. Not I wasn't intending to make a protest about it. I just was thinking, you know, I might be better off just at home. Right. And they said, you know, do what Nancy didn't try to push anybody in any direction. She just said, do whatever you want to do. It's not doesn't matter to me. And my chief of staff said I needed to be there because I'm now in leadership. And I asked, I asked Nancy that, and she said, no, don't worry about it. Whatever you want to do is fine. And so that's where I was when the John Lewis thing broke, and then the question of attendance became an issue, <laughs> a public issue. Right. And I, I got, we got in our office probably that weekend close to 200 calls from people saying, every one of them saying, don't go. Um, 200 calls is a fair amount. And so I started thinking, well, now I have to make a decision, and now I have to publicly explain why I'm doing it. Right. And and uh, so what was the know, basis of the decision? Because I could have said before before John Lewis, I could have said, you know, I've had a cold for a month. I just don't want to go and sit outside <laughs> for, two, you know, for two two hours. Um, so what is your so, what is your rationalization for for not going? What what's the reasoning? So what I said was that um, I did not believe that um, that Donald Trump had shown respect for the office, and that his behavior uh, was, had diminished the office, and I didn't want to uh, in any way uh, be considered condoning the behavior that from the time, not from the time he announced, but particularly from, the, from November 8th on, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that was the rationale that I gave. Okay, but the problem there, John, one, there, I think there's the issue of respecting the, the transfer of power. And what do you say to that, by the way? What do you say to people who say, well, wait a no, minute? No, I said I fully, I fully understand and respect that um, the event as a, as a signal event in, in American life and uh, representing the best, some of the best aspects of our democracy. Um, but I, have to, I had to make a decision. And, again, it became an issue as to whether we went or not. Okay, so then, so at what point then, you know, obviously in the next four years, assuming you run mm-hmm. for re-election and win, and, and he stays in office for four years, there's going to be other events that are going to be at least somewhat similar. Where do you now draw the line in accepting the Donald Trump presidency? Well, I think that's a good question, and we'll see what happens over the next four years. You know, my guess is that... Um, Attendance at the next one, if he if he in fact is reelected. Well, I'm not even talking about inauguration. I'm talking about. I mean, oh. maybe I'm misinterpreting what what your reasons were. But like, for instance, you know, if he calls you, uh, does do you accept the call? I mean, oh, absolutely, absolutely. And as I said, you know, I've been asked about it a uh, number of times. It was, it was, uh, people said, "Well, don't you think this is going to jeopardize your working relationship?" And I said, "As many nasty things as have been said about Donald Trump during the Republican primary, and now." One of the guys he, he said, who said all his nasty things is going to be Secretary of Energy. The other one, another one's going to be Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. I think Donald Trump has a way to burying the hatchet pretty easily. <laughs> I, said, I, don't, I don't really worry about that. And I, and I certainly, you know, if, if Donald Trump called me and asked me to come to the White House for a meeting, I would certainly do it. If he called me and asked me to play golf, I would certainly do it. Well, uh, no, let me stop you there because that's, <laughs> cause that's an interesting distinction. So you wouldn't go to the inauguration, but you would play golf with him. Right. Oh, if the President of the United States called me and asked me to play golf with him, yes, I would do it. Interesting. Now, that's yeah. not a, uh, a far-fetched concept. Uh, one, you played golf with Obama. Two, you're the best golfer, at least uh, as far as we can tell, in Congress. Uh, not that that's saying all that much. but And I actually belong to a golf club that he owns. <laughs> in Ireland, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, right. Uh, and, and so I, I'm curious, will, will you use golf when and if you have interaction with him to, uh, to schmooze Trump? Because you know he's very schmoozable on the issue of, of golf. Right. Well, oh, yeah, you- well, it depends on who wants what out of whom. Uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be a really interesting dynamic with, with, between Congress and, and the White House over the next few years. And I, my guess is that uh, the uh, the odds are the president will want Democrats, will need Democrats' help on a lot of issues, um, far more so than Democrats will need Donald Trump. Well, I, I want to talk about that because I, I think that the, the dynamic we're facing here is unprecedented, at least in my lifetime. 
politically, mm-hmm. and I want to get your thoughts on that. But let's this one other thing on the golf deal because I've never had a chance okay. to talk to you about this. <laughs> when, when Trump announced back in 2015, about two or three days afterwards, I called you as you I'm sure you remember, mm-hmm. and and I was um, my hair was on fire as right. you know, <laughs> yes, <laughs> because I I knew this was really really. A bad development. Now, I did not think he was going to be president of the United States. Uh, I thought he was going to disrupt the Republican primary process to the point where there's no chance that anything good was going to happen, which actually did occur just in a way that I I didn't anticipate. Long story short, uh, I, I proposed an idea to you that maybe Trump might get cold feet if he thought that his golf affiliations specifically with, for instance, the USGA, the PGA, right. the RNA, uh, that uh, he, he, he very much treasures the idea that his golf courses would be eligible to be used for major championships by the major golf governing bodies. Right. And that if Congress or members of Congress, even unofficially, started to raise this as an issue, he might get nervous. And if he didn't back out, at least he might, you know, put a cap on it and, and not be nearly as as crazy as it was clear he was going to be. You thought that was an interesting idea, and you even pursued it. Uh, In fact, we talked about it publicly in a couple different uh, interviews. And at one point, apparently, there was a letter that that was written, and there was pledges to sign it by members of both parties. And yet it never happened. So so what what happened there? Because I just always (laughs) presumed that somebody in leadership of the Democratic side decided, you know what? We're pretty happy with what's going on here with Trump disrupting the Republican nominating process. Let's not do anything to to put a stop to that. Am I right in that assessment? Well, I mean, I, I think that's probably true, although that that was not a factor in why the letter, letter was never sent. The letter was never sent because the golf, the golf um, governing bodies, most of them, uh, went public and, and made statements at the time, and it seemed to me that it was that they had already considered what they were doing and made a decision. So, well, was there was there an angry. under was there an under at that time, John? Was there mm-hmm. an underlying feeling on your Democratic side that hey, let's just let this Trump thing play out because this is going to be good for us? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no question about that. Okay, and yeah. and, and how'd that turn out? <laughs> Cataclysmically. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Now let's get back to um, the inauguration. So what did you think of what you missed? I know you, by the way, you didn't just miss the inauguration. You gave up a really nice lunch, too. I did. I did. That's the one thing I regret. I would have, that, that lunch in Statuary Hall looked like it was very nice. I, I would have enjoyed that. Um, you know, I, I, to me, it's not original with me, but I said it within five minutes of the speech in an interview, I, I thought it was just sounded like another campaign speech. Uh, there was no deference to the people he um, who had not supported him, and it was mostly red meat to the base. And it showed me also that he really still had not come to grips with the magnitude of the role that he's about to play. And... The, the position he's filling. So I, I thought, I thought my first reaction was, well, I don't think there's any question. He wrote that speech because no legitimate speechwriter would have written such a piece of tripe. Well, actually, I disagree. I, I'm almost positive it was written by Steve Bannon. Who, yeah, uh, well, uh, yeah, since then I've, I've, I've been told that, but that was my reaction to it. And I said, well, Steve Bannon may not be a professional speechwriter either. Well, no, and, and and I I think the fact and I and I tweeted this two minutes into the speech that Steve mm-hmm. Bannon wrote it, and it's later been effectively confirmed by by the Trump forces, mm-hmm. and I think that's incredibly significant. Not not just because it, it set the tone for the entire administration in your inaugural address, because what it says about who's really running the show. I mean, obviously, as you know, right. John, for someone for Trump to lean on. Bannon to write his inaugural address shows that right now, now granted, there's a very good chance this is going to change numerous times uh-huh. as, as things evolve. But right now, Steve Bannon is the man inside the White House, and that's what it looks like. And that should scare people. Uh, and yeah. you know, as someone who who has had dinner with Steve Bannon one on one at a Denny's a few years ago, <laughs> um, and I was completely unimpressed then. And a guy who I I, I have a lot of uh, similar, you know 
contacts in common with, nobody thinks this is a good idea, even on the conservative side, that uh, this guy should have this much power and influence. But, um, you know, the, but, but you know what? What I took out of it, not just the fact that Bannon is now in, effectively in charge of the White House, John, but, but also what the, the political strategy appears to be. And, and I, I want to run this past you because I find this really amazing, and I can't tell if it's genius or insanity. And, and frankly, a lot, of, a lot of the Trump political strategy from day one, that's been the debate. Is this genius yeah. or is it insanity? Is he, is he playing checkers or is he playing chess? And I keep, I keep switching sides on this issue. I, I think a lot of times that people give the Trump people way too much credit. Oh, they're playing three-dimensional chess when, in fact, all they're doing is placating his ego, like with the Sean Spicer press conference yesterday, which we'll get to. But here's, here's where I'm going with this. That speech, as you said, placating the base, it appears to me that their governing philosophy is going to be that we're going to rule with a passionate 33% or thereabouts of the electorate and screw everybody else, as opposed to what has always been the modern governing philosophy of let's get 55% of the people who, not, who, who are willing to say they kind of like us. You see what I'm saying? That, the, yeah. that, that Trump doesn't care about 66%. He, he wants 33% to be willing to take a bullet for him, and he'll govern that way. It doesn't matter what the other 67% think. Am I right about this? That's what it appears he's, he's doing. I, I agree with you. It's, it's a very strange, strange attitude, and you see it just, I know we're going to get to it, but that, that's what Sean Spicer's performance yesterday indicated. That's what Kellyanne Conway on Meet the Press indicated um, that they're just going to be in your face, just keep, the, keep those people happy, and uh, let everything else fall where it may. It's, well, it's bizarre to me. Well, here's the theory that it could work, and that is that I think they're counting on apathy by that middle third. In other words, if the middle yeah. third just doesn't give a crap and, and isn't even paying attention, that the really intense one-third can impact everything. Let me give you a great example. I know you've been watching the um, PBS uh, series uh, Divided States of America, right. mm-hmm. and I don't know if you've seen this part yet, but, but, you know, and, and, but I know you're familiar with the issue. You know, one of the most depressing things for Barack Obama in a second term was that he wasn't able to get even very moderate gun control through that 90 percent of the American people allegedly were in favor of because the other 10 percent were so intensely against it. And so in that in that situation, the 10 percent were able to win the day. Now, that's a gun control is a somewhat unique set of circumstances, partially because we have the Second Amendment, but also because of the NRA and what have you. But, but it's, the right. same, it's the same concept. I think they're taking a page out of that playbook. We don't, we, if you can stop gun control with even moderate gun control with 10%, once you have the presidency, the House, and the Senate, all you need is your passionate 33% to scare the living daylights out of every Republican congressman and a Republican senator because if they lose that 33%, they can't get reelected. Then you can win. You see, do, do you no, agree? I, you make a pretty good case. I, I think that's a dynamic that's very much at play. Of course, yeah. it's, it's not good for the country. I, I mean, it's, oh, no. I mean, by the way, I would say that regardless of what the governing philosophy was, even if there was one, which I don't see one, right. uh, with regard to, to, to whatever's going on with the Trump White House, but... But that, it's not good for the country because you're, you're literally splintering us into thirds. And you're banking on the fact that at least a third of the people won't give a shit, that they'll just, you know, that they'll just let it happen. And frankly, I think you can make a very strong argument that that's where we are in this country. That, that well, we, we, saw the, we saw a very similar thing happen in Kentucky in the governor's race in 2015, and we're seeing it actually play out. Uh, in his first year as governor, which just ended, uh, it's kind of the same thing, and uh, <clears throat> he he was able to win control of the of the general assembly this year. Now, obviously, the presidential 
election in Kentucky had a lot to do with that because in some areas of the state, Trump beat Hillary Clinton by 50 percentage points. It's hard hard to be in a state legislative race and overcome that kind of right. uh, head start. But but it certainly was true in the in the governor's race in 2015. There was a passionate. Uh, you know, the, we, we had 30 percent turnout in the governor's race, so a lot of people didn't care. And then he he got he got a little over 50 percent. So he he won the governor's race with 16 percent of registered voters, and he thinks he has a mandate. And maybe effectively he does if they're the only ones out in the street. Now, yesterday to me was a very reassuring day right. because of the millions of people who, who, who came out and obviously as a reaction to all of this. So A little late, don't you think? A little late, yes. I mean, gee, if, it's, yeah. if only we had just had an election where these people could have had their voices heard. That's right. Uh, <laughs> um, I do want to talk a little bit about that, but let's go back to Sean Spicer because th- th- to me this was a seminal moment. I mean, you know how much I care about the truth. Uh, you care about the truth more than any other Democrat I know. And for the press secretary, let's let's just set this up because this is mind-blowing on so many different levels. But the press secretary of the brand-new president of the United States of America calls a special, a special press conference. And you can't even call it a press conference because he didn't take questions. But on a Saturday, he calls, us, he calls everyone together for his first, First official event, and he proceeds to go into a diatribe about how horrible it was for the New York Times to tweet out photographs comparing (laughs) the 2009 inaugural crowd to the 2017 inaugural crowd, which clearly showed that Trump's crowd was nowhere near, and understandably so, by the way, uh, Obama's crowd in, in 2009, and proceeds to claim that this was the most attended and the most watched inauguration in U.S. history, period. And then, after castigating the, the media and the press, he walks out without taking questions. Yeah. Um, I, I, even I was, my jaw was on the floor, and, and I, I can't even imagine, as a Democrat, what your reaction was, so, so why don't you tell me? Well, as a as a journalist too, I mean, right? You know, you, you know, used to you used to run a newspaper in Louisville, right. Kentucky. Okay. Yeah, so I had a double double negative reaction. One was the same one you had as a that you know if this is what um, press freedoms mean to the Trump administration, then we are we're going to have a serious challenge over the next few years. And as a Democrat, someone who who's says. You know, can you believe anything that's coming out of this White House period? And then you start thinking about, oh, my God, you know, you've got agencies of government that have facts and information that, is, that are important to the country. And are, are we ever are we going to have access to that? Or are they just going to shut everything down? I mean, the, the ramifications of that kind of attitude are, are really, really alarming. And the other thing that stunned me was, how hostile his demeanor was right. when he walked out, and it was like, "I am angry at the world, and screw you all." Well, it's and, you know that's an incredibly important context because it's it's important to point out this comes after the president himself goes to the CIA in front of the CIA memorial and proceeds to tell this story about how he thought there were a million and a half people in front of him, as if, by the way, since you've been, <laughs> since you've been there, you know, as if, by the way, you could tell from the podium, uh, you know, how long the crowd goes out to the Washington Monument. You can't. No, uh, you can't get anywhere close to that. Right. And, and so, he, but he, in his own mind, but, but here's the important part. I, I don't give a damn how many people were at the inauguration. I mean, it's somewhat interesting, but it's, it's, a, it's a, at best a footnote to the event. But the idea that the next day, we're not, it's 24 hours later after his crowning achievement, and a, a, something that, a day that went very well in, in all other respects, he should be thrilled. His, his ego should be placated for months, if not years. And here he is so insecure. Is his ego so hurt by a tweet? By the way, validating what Hillary Clinton said that you can you you can tweak this guy with a tweet, and he shouldn't <laughs> shouldn't have the nuclear codes. A tweet by the New York Times with just photographs. That's all it was. <laughs> I, I mean, to me, what it, it revealed two things. There's two basic issues here. There's the truth element, but there's what it says about the demeanor and the personality 
of our commander-in-chief. And I got to tell you, John, this is something that, as you know, has concerned me since day one when he announced, because I think I know Donald Trump. I mean, I've met him briefly. I, my father did a lot of business with him. I've read a lot about him. I know this personality type. This is not a guy suited to be president of the United States. But even I am shocked that 24 hours later it has reared its head in this dramatic a fashion. I know it's hyperbole, and, but it might, I don't think it is. I think this guy is mentally ill. Do you agree? I, I, I have many questions about his sanity. Absolutely. Uh, the, the way he overreacts to so many things, you know, somebody who's up in the middle of the night tweeting about Vanity Fair or Saturday Night Live, or, that's not, not normal behavior. And, it, and at this, or somebody who feels compelled as the president-elect to tweet about Arnold Schwarzenegger's ratings on Celebrity Apprentice. By the way, a show that he's the executive producer exactly. of. Yeah, exactly. I, I, you cannot make it up. You, you, no. You can, you, not, that's, not a, that's not a normal person who does that. I, thought, I honestly thought, John, that what we saw yesterday would not happen for at least a year or so. I, I, I thought that eventually... You know, this was all going to get to him. Things would go badly. He would panic. Uh, his ego would, you know, w- would need to be uh, soothed, whatever. But the next day, it happened the mm-hmm. first day. Now, now let's get to the issue of the truth, okay? Nobody, nobody believes that that inauguration was the most well-attended in U.S. history. <laughs> it, it's not even close, all right? Um, and, and for the press secretary to go out there and say that in a, in a very confrontational fashion— what I felt was, holy crap, George Orwell's 1984 is now in real life. And, and, and the great tragedy is, I doubt any of the Trump supporters have actually read the book, 1984. <laughs> right. That's true. And then you had Kellyanne Conway the following day on Meet the Press go out and say, well, there are alternative facts. Alternative facts. <laughs> And by the way, with a straight face. With a straight face. Wait, no, no, let me just give you some alternative <laughs> facts. So, so John, we are, we are literally, this is, again, it's an important point. I'm a diehard conservative. You're a, a bleeding heart liberal. I, you know, we, we don't agree on much. But it is so patently obvious that we are living in an, in an era now, the, the post-truth era, where truth means nothing. And, and what they're doing here, what they're doing, I think, and, and to the extent that there's a strategy, and I, I question whether yesterday was a strategy. I think it was about Trump being pissed off and, and Spicer needing to, to make his ego feel better. Um, yeah. but, but you agree with that? Yes. Okay. But, but it's just to the extent that there's a strategy, they know that there's going to be a whole bunch of crap that they're going to do wrong. There's going to be scandals. There's going to be all sorts of things that will come out in the next four years, assuming he, he sticks around for that long. And they're trying to delegitimize any media coverage, any media credibility, because they know that the news media has very low approval ratings as it is. And, and by the way, they've earned it. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so he's taking advantage of that as a strategy to where at least that 33%, he doesn't care about anybody else. But nothing will get inside his 33% bubble, especially when Fox News, Talk Radio, The Drudge Report, Breitbart.com, and the rest are all protecting the bubble. So that's what they're doing. They are discrediting any semblance of credibility by a news media that might be able to pierce that 33% bubble. Do you, do you see that as, as oh, yeah. being accurate? Well, you know, that's been a strategy from the right for a long time to discredit the, the, the legitimate media. But not to this, not to this degree, John. Not to this degree, no. Not okay. to this degree. And, and, and the idea, by the way, that Fox News is going along with it, uh, other than Chris Wallace, basically, mm-hmm. and, and maybe Britt Hume, uh, is just, uh, it, it's a, it, it, I, I, John, you might laugh at this. I now find myself, not consciously, I now find myself watching MSNBC more than I watch Fox News Channel. How crazy is that? Well, welcome to the welcome to the club. Yeah, but I, I would a few <laughs> yeah, years. No, ago, no, that's that's pretty bizarre. It's quite an admission. I, well, I'm not proud of it. 
<laughs> I, I, I'm not remotely proud of it. Uh, and and yet, you know, I mean, at least there, I, I have a shot at, at hearing something that's not complete bullcrap. But I mean, but Fox News Channel has become Pravda. And by the way, while we have you, and I mentioned Pravda, where are you? Where are you on how serious to take the the whole uh, CNN BuzzFeed uh, dossier, Russian dossier issue um, with regard to whether or not Trump may be compromised by Vladimir Putin? Wh- what is your stance on that? How, how much validity do you think we should put in that? I put very little in the dossier story. Um, I think there are, there are many things suspicious about relationships of uh, between Trump and people around Trump and people in Russia. Uh, I think there's a lot of information that is yet to be known, and we probably need to know it. But I, I think the one, the one document, to me, is it's so, it's so questionable and so much of it's doubtful that I, I kind of discard that. Well, I felt the same way, John. When I read it, it didn't seem, it didn't resonate as truth to me. It seemed like, for instance, with regard to the now infamous golden shower story, the, the, there, were, there were details in there that I'm like, how would anybody know, you know, for instance, what his intent was, that he wanted to defile the, the bed that Michelle yeah, right. and Barack right. had been right. sleeping? That, did, that just didn't ring true with me. Um, however... What I don't, what I can't figure out, John, is what's the scenario where the document is a total fake? The guy who wrote it has a, a very legitimate background as a former British right. spy. Uh, this was taken seriously by our intelligence agencies, and I have to tell you that his reaction, the reaction of Kellyanne Conway, and the reaction of many of his supporters, I think, was very much into the category of "dust thou protest too much," and, and was consistent. With there being something, I don't know what, I have no idea yeah. what's true or not. But, but to me, uh, especially when you consider, you know, the, the Michael Flynn and the Rex Tillerson nominations, something is going on here. I, yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm, we're saying the same thing. Again, I think there's too much suspicious about relationships uh, inside the Trump team and, and administration with Russia uh, that we, we need to know. What's going on? But I, and and I suspect that there is there are germs of truth in that dossier. I just didn't think it was something that we should say. Okay, we've got to impeach the guy right now because well, of the uh, right. Well, that wasn't ever going to happen. But don't right. in a weird way though, John, doesn't Trump benefit from the the uh, incredibly not just the dramatic salaciousness of the allegations, but uh, you can't get any more damning an allegation than the president of the United States is compromised by Vladimir Putin because of incriminating information they have. Doesn't Trump actually benefit from the fact that that's so crazy in the average American's mind that the level of proof needed to accept that as true is like off the charts and completely unrealistic given the circumstances? Doesn't he benefit from that? Yeah, I I think he does. I mean, it's almost like the big lie. It's yeah. like the big lie theory in reverse. Like, I mean, because I mean, if this was a far less egregious allegation, I think people would probably think, "Oh, okay." And there's probably something to that. But because because this seems so nuts, I I think he actually, yeah. in a weird way, benefits from it. And and by the way, uh, going forward, what's the level of scandal for Donald Trump? Oh, gee. I mean, seriously. I mean, as the, I think the news media is going to find itself in a very odd spot where there are going to be all sorts of situations where in prior administrations a story would be either lethal or near lethal that won't even register because we are so desensitized before he's even started. I mean, if it doesn't rise to the level of him being compromised by Russia, then, <laughs> then who cares? <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I think he benefits from that, and I think, you know, in a weird way, he's playing the media. I, I'm curious, John, on the, on the, um, the whole che- what I call the chess checkers issue. Mm-hmm. Where do you stand on that in general with regard to Trump? Is he playing chess or is he playing checkers? Well, 
I don't know. I mean, I still think he's playing checkers, but he does seem to stumble on some very effective things. One of the things that, that when he said during the campaign, which at the time I thought was the the craziest thing that I, that was, I ever heard, and nobody would, everybody would laugh at it, was when he said, you know, what the hell do you have to lose by voting for him? Right. And I, I now think, in retrospect, it was the most brilliant thing that was said during the campaign. When he, said that to, when he said that to black people. He said it to black America, but, but I think it resonated far beyond black America. And even with black America, I talked to Jim Clyburn about this. He said the weekend that he said that, the conversations in the black barbershops in South Carolina changed. Hmm. And so, it, so, you know, and, and I think there were white people who said, yeah, you know, he's probably right. What do we have to lose? You know... John, I mean, I know that you're very close to the black community in Louisville, Kentucky, and, and obviously you had a good relationship with Barack Obama. I'm sure that President Obama, former President Obama, has to be stunned by the fact that, among many things about the election, but number one has to be that the black community did not respond, one, to Trump, Mr. Berther, uh, and, and two, to Hillary, who obviously he endorsed wholeheartedly, Near to nearly the level that I think he expected. Do you, is that your explanation for why that happened? That, that that somehow Trump was able to resonate with a small portion of of the black community enough to at least keep turnout down. Um, I think that was part of it. Uh, I think you know Hillary did fine with with African American community in my district and turnout wise and in percentage wise um, and. So I, I, I kind of find it hard to believe that that was that significant. But if you go to basically 0% support, which some polls had him, 0 or 1%, and you end up at 8, um, in, in certain areas, you had Milwaukee and, and in Detroit and communities in those states that turned the election, that could, be, that could have been the difference. It just amazed, it amazed me. And I, that uh, forget about Hillary for a second. I would have thought that anger over birtherism alone would have motivated uh, the black community far more than it appears to have done. And I, and maybe it's you know maybe it's because the news media basically ignored that issue. Yeah, uh, and 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 I don't th- and Hillary's campaign didn't make much of that either. You know, you can take them to task as well. Oh, no, though they made tons of mistakes. There's no no yeah. question about that. Uh, now, in, in the remaining minutes we have with the Democratic Congressman John Yarmouth, uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, you, obviously you and I don't like Trump. Um, right. I, I'm curious, and I know that there's not a lot of conversation across party lines, but I know there's some. What are, what are Republicans that you're talking to uh, saying about Trump behind closed doors. Do you think that they're excited in general or are they behind closed doors crapping their pants about what's about to happen and what could eventually come back to bite them? I would say, and there's a considerable amount of conversation across party lines behind doors. Um, I would say they are freaked out and panicked far more than we are, far more than Democrats are. Um, Because they, first of all, they don't know what's coming at them. They, they have no idea what the agenda of Trump's going to be, and they, they are appalled by his behavior, and they've got, you know, kind of in terms of uh, social mores and so forth, they're kind of more sensitive to the crassness of, of his behavior than, than maybe Democratic constituents would be. Um, so I, they're to- totally freaked out because they, they know that he's the head of their party, they will pay a, pretty, a, a political price if he goes off the rails, and they're going to have to defend him to a certain extent. So they're totally free. Would you give? Could, could I know you, this is an inexact uh, guesstimate mm-hmm. on your part, but what would you say would be the percentage of Republicans, if if in Congress, if hooked up to a lie detector test, who would be in the the holy crap I'm freaked out category? Eighty five. Eighty five. Yeah, 85%. I will tell you the only people who aren't, the types, and I will name them, Steve King of Iowa, right. Louie Gohmert from Texas, those, you know, that category of Republican, and there are, you know, there are probably 20 of them in, in the House. Um, 
they're the only ones who think this is all nice and all good. Every other one, again, they will tell you. Interesting. They're appalled by his behavior, and and they're they're just they're extremely anxious about what's going to happen. Well, they should be. I mean, if you just look at recent history, I mean, if you if you, I, I think that Trump is the inverse of Obama in many ways, but he's also in many ways the the Republican Obama, only with far less approval when he enters the <laughs> office and without the news media behind him. And so when you look at what happened with Obama and what happened to you guys in 2010 and again in 2014, how that doesn't happen in the same way to Trump is almost impossible to comprehend to me, especially when he enters with the economic statistics. And I think the reality is different than the statistics, but the statistics at least are tremendous right now. So it's not as if he's going to be able to say, you know, with any credibility, well, we, you know, we did this, this, and this, and, you know, and all that. So, so how in the world, and I realize that in the Senate, the numbers are against you guys in two years, but um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I should be out of the prediction business with Trump after I blew it in, in this election, although not nearly as badly as, as people perceive, because after all, Hillary won the popular vote by three million votes. And, right. and there were only really there were only two or three states where Trump did better than he, the polls indicated that he would. But anyway, I digress. I believe that in 2020, you guys will probably control everything again. I, 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 I'm curious, if, do you agree with that? I think there's a reasonable chance of that happening. We only have to flip 25 seats in the House, um, which, you know, and when we came in in 06, which I think the, the 2018 election year can, might end up being very similar to 06, and we flipped 30 seats that year. So it could certainly be, um, yeah, we could certainly have the majority in the House in 2018 and have them both in 2020. Ironically, the, 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 the element of those three that I'm least confident about is the presidency, because I don't know who the heck you're going to run up against him. And I, I actually think that Trump is effectively running a third party at this point, where Republicans have no choice but to be aligned with him, because if they're not, they're screwed. And so he basically has them over a barrel. And so I think the dynamic there, depending on who your candidate is, might be difficult to pull off. And obviously, it's always tough to beat an incumbent, even right. one as crazy as, as Trump. But let me let me play out, lay out a scenario. You know, I love to do this, uh, even mm-hmm. though even though I, this is not something that I'm uh, at all in favor of. But I'm well aware that I have zero influence. Uh, heck, I have zero influence in my own my own household. So I <laughs> so I, I know I have zero influence outside of that. But if I'm a Democratic strategist uh, and, and I want to um, torpedo the Republican Party, I think it's on a silver platter for you guys. And the silver platter is Trump's upcoming Supreme Court nominee. Because uh, to me, you guys can put the Republican Party in an impossible situation. Let's presume, let's presume that Trump... Uh, nominates like uh, Justice uh, Pryor out of Alabama, right? You know, hardcore conservative. And, you know, conservatives, the, the cons- the, what's remaining of the conservative base is going to love that, right? Right. Um, but it, because of the precedent set by the Garland situation, and because, frankly, most of the country doesn't give a damn that there's eight Supreme Court justices, right. I think that if Schumer plays his cards right, uh, you guys can at least, and I know you're in the House, not the Senate, but I'm going to say you guys, the Democrats, you yep. guys can at least delay the, the approval of any nominee, especially a hard right nominee, long enough to where his popularity is diminished enough by just the natural course of events where he cannot possibly get through that nominee unless... Republicans torch the filibuster entirely, which then, of course, allows you guys potentially in four years to do whatever the hell you want, which would be disastrous for my side, but, you know, orgasmic for your side. And I believe in what I believe about Trump. I think Trump will cry uncle 
because he doesn't give a crap about the Supreme Court. He's not a conservative. He's not. He's going to be tired of taking crap over this. He'll he'll end up withdrawing prior. He'll go with somebody off the list. And, and just by simply going off the list of 21 and handing Schumer that kind of victory, the lack of trust that the conservative base has in Trump will create an absolute catastrophe on the right because it will be seen as a betrayal on our side and and his entire coalition will disintegrate to to being completely ungovernable. What do you think about that scenario? Um, sounds delightful. <laughs> but is no, it No, I mean it could certainly play out that way and I I think that um, um, Schumer and the Republicans in the Senate are going to make it very, very difficult to confirm a, a real right-wing justice. They're going to use every tool they can. So it could very well play out the way you, the way you script it. And by the way, to be clear, I don't want that. I want, yeah, the, I understand. I, I want there to be another Scalia. But I, I don't see, uh, unless McConnell, and you know Mitch McConnell very, very well, uh, and don't like him. By the way, I don't like him either, but for different reasons. But uh, you know, unless McConnell decides to nuclear nuclear option and and destroy the filibuster, which I think would be difficult, because I think you know Orrin Hatch, John McCain, Lindsey Graham would probably say no to that, and and therefore you know you, you couldn't get it done anyway. Um, but unless unless they go that way, I don't see how in the world you get sixty votes. Especially after yesterday, I mean, you have four to five million women, all you know, ninety-eight percent of whom are are ardently pro-choice in the streets, and you're gonna you're gonna uh, you're gonna ignore that and and allow a ardently pro-life judge to replace uh, Scalia? I mean, no, you can't. Yeah, you, you absolutely can't. I, I mean, yeah. and, and do you think, John, that? Um, Schumer is is saving his ammunition on the cabinet picks by not going after the cabinet picks in order for this what will be an epic fight over the Supreme Court. Oh well, I don't know whether he's saving his any his his powder, but I think his, uh, certainly the Supreme Court is, is is a much higher priority than the cat than the cabinet. Okay, and yeah, now you much higher priority. Now you are the rank, you are now mem- part of leadership. You're the, the ranking member on the on the budget committee. And uh, I'm curious what your reaction is to the uh, the word that supposedly uh, the, the Trump people are going to propose massive spending cuts. Although who the hell knows? But that's that's been the most recent rumor this week. W- what what do you make of that? Um, well, I, I suspect that that's going to happen. So I don't know why he would have appointed Mick Mulvaney as OMB director if that's what he did not intend to do. Because Mick is as much a budget hawk as as is alive. And I actually, and a, and a pretty good friend of mine too, by the way, <laughs> which I know is strange, but he plays golf. So now there you go. That, there you there's go. usually golf behind it somewhere. Exactly. So, uh, you know, mix one of these guys who's not afraid to shut the government down and default on the debt and all of that. But um, I, I think he doesn't. His nomination doesn't make sense to me, unless Trump's planning to to make some draconian cuts. But, you know, even the draconian cuts that he's been talking about, I think the total is like $10 billion, but, but they're high-profile things like Corporation for Public Broadcasting and the National Endowment for the Arts and some of the other some of the departments and agencies that um, liberals love. But uh, they really won't have much of an impact on, on the deficit. Um, so we'll see. The big cuts, if, if he's going to make them, are going to be in Medicaid and they're going to be uh, I don't think he, he says he's not. He said he wouldn't cut me- Medicare and Social Security, so that really leaves. And he's going to raise defense, so <laughs> the only thing left is Medicaid, and and programs where you really can't get get much blood out of them without just eliminating wholesale things. All right, last question for my good friend, yeah. uh, and then you've been very generous with your time, uh, Democratic Congressman John Yarmuth from Louisville. I, I want to ask you about Obamacare. Uh, Trump signed uh, what appeared to be a mostly symbolic executive order all of a sudden by the way conservatives are all in favor of executive orders which i find to be hilarious um <laughs> that i guess symbolically eliminates the mandate for obamacare although i'm not 100 percent sure that that's by the way do you do you understand what the heck that executive order did because I, I don't um, think i do 
Well, no, it, well, because it's a, it's a very uh, vague and impossible to interpret right. uh, uh, executive order. It just says that agencies are directed to um, do what they can under the law to um, relieve the burdens of the Affordable Care Act. Now, some people are reading that as the individual mandate, uh, which IRS could do um, effectively without legislation. Right. Uh, but the, the the bigger picture is that it's going to be really, really difficult for the Republicans to even repeal the Affordable Care Act. There are already a half dozen Republican senators who who said that they it, there has to be a replacement. Right on board before they vote for repeal. I mean, at the same time, if, if that's the case, then you're looking at six months anyway to, until you get a replacement plan because they aren't even close to one. And in those six months, the 7,000 lobbyists who were working on the Affordable Care Act back in 2009 will reappear, and they're going to say, wait a minute, you're going to take $150 billion of revenue away from us? Not so fast. And by the way, we paid for your campaigns. <laughs> so right. got, the hospital associations already chimed in. The AMA has chimed in. Insurance industry has. The pharmaceutical companies will. The medical equipment companies will. The home health care companies will. It's, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to, go, to come up with any kind of sensible replacement plan. It, and it, the bottom line is there are only two options to the Affordable Care Act. One's to go back to where we were. And the other one, before the Affordable Care Act, the other one's to go to single payer. If there were any other options, Heritage or Cato or the Koch brothers, somebody would have come up with them in the last seven years. So do you think, John, that um, irony of all ironies, that Trump's election could end up getting a single payer health care? I I absolutely see that scenario happening. (laughs) I absolutely see it happening. As much as I would hate that, I would I would at least enjoy laughing at my uh, at the uh, conservative whores who sold themselves out in the media uh, to Donald Trump for them to to see how they would spin that. And by the way, uh, I agree with you because you know uh, Trump was actually quoted uh, as uh, in an interview, fairly high profile interview, as basically being in favor of single payer back at the beginning of the. Uh, the primary season, and no one paid any attention to it. Exactly. Uh, um, so it wouldn't shock me at all, um, although uh, you know, nothing will shock me in the, in the Trump era. But just one other thing on Obamacare. See, I think it's, mm-hmm. even, more, I think it's even more fundamental than what you just outlined. Well, to me, fixing, uh, you know, repealing or replacing Obamacare is basically like trying to make uh, 2 plus 2 equal 5. You, you, there's, it's a mathematical impossibility, or maybe a better analogy is it's kind of like taking water and removing one of the, the hydrogen mo- molecules, and, or there's oxygen that has two, whatever, H2O, <laughs> right, t- taking out one of the molecules and saying you still have water. You don't have water anymore. Uh, I mean, what I mean by this is, and this, this to me is the classic Trump uh, situation where he just really doesn't understand anything. Because he, he says, well, I love the pre-existing conditions uh, component, mm-hmm. but I don't want the mandate. Well, right. well but, but you, you, can't, you can't do that. It doesn't work because then no one will be in the insurance business. If you, exactly right. I mean, so, so there is, I mean, literally, this is, do Republicans understand, behind, again, behind closed doors, John, do they understand the impossibility of what they have now been burdened with? No, I really don't think they do. I think they're beginning to get a hint of it. Um, but, you know, when we, when we were drafting the bill in 9 and 10, Republicans didn't participate. They just, they just said, you all do whatever you're going to do. <laughs> you know, we're not going to be involved. And right now, probably two-thirds of the Republicans in the House anyway weren't there in 2009 and 10, so they have no idea what they're dealing with, how complex this is. Um, you know, you've got a few physicians in there who know about being a physician, but just being a physician like Tom Price doesn't help you solve the entire health care. As a matter of fact, it, it, to a certain extent, it, it's an impediment because you have a warped perspective mm-hmm. on <laughs> the dynamics involved in health care. Um, but you don't, have, you don't have any Republicans who are really involved in doing health care legislation. And uh, so they, they don't know. 
It's stunning to me because I think that's going to be an atomic bomb. I, I, I don't I don't see any scenario where it works out well for Republicans, because, by the way, even if they pull this Houdini act, there's going to be short term suffering that you can't overcome before the next election. There's just not enough time. That's right. So so I, I you know, I, I've tried, but I can't see the scenario where Republicans get out of this, uh, this trap. It's a trap. They, they, they have, they, exactly. They have boxed themselves in, you know, and, and then you've got Trump saying, well, we're going to have insurance for everybody. <laughs> well, that's single payer. That's right. the only way you get that done. Right. And <laughs> well, well, John, I think, mess. John, as always, thanks so much for your time. But I, I think that you are in the catbird seat, my friend. I, I think that if you, you, you stick it out, uh, I don't know how many more terms you, you're going to go, but, you know, now that you're, the ranking member of the budget committee, maybe you'll stick around for a while. But I, I think that uh, we're going to see um, potentially here, depending on obviously circumstances, that uh, the tide is going to turn uh, fairly strongly uh, in your direction, if not in two years, probably in four years, since you guys tend to do better in, in those elections, although not this time around. But uh, but anyway, John, uh, thanks. Thanks. By the way, one last one, one real quick question. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> A lot of people have been confused by my ardent uh, opposition to Trump. Based upon what you know about me, have you been at all surprised by my uh, position on Trump? Oh, not for a minute. No. And why is that? Well, because you recognize, I think, accurately that he's not a conservative and that he can do great damage to the conservative movement as president. And so I, I fully understand that. All right. Okay, I, I appreciate that. And as, as always, great talking to you, and I'll talk to you again soon, John. Okay, John. Thanks so Good much. Good to be with you. That's uh, Democratic Congressman uh, John Yarmouth from uh, Louisville, Kentucky, the most honest Democrat uh, that is uh, left in Washington, D.C., and we really appreciate his time. And I hope you appreciated the interview. If you do, make sure you tell a friend about it, share it on social media, uh, do that with the, every hour of this podcast, but particularly this one, since I think you – I've probably enjoyed this interview as much or more so than I did. Make sure that you uh, tune in again next week, next Sunday, for the next edition of the World According to Zig, Zig podcast, where we're expected to be joined in our, as our guest. Our guest will be uh, former CIA director Michael Hayden, and that'll be even probably more interesting than John Yarmouth, if that was possible. So look forward to that. Uh, and until next week... My name is John Ziegler, and please remember, if you're one of those people that sleeps and you sleep with sheets, make sure you do yourself a favor and listen to this important message. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mmm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.